0: As the teachings of the Buddha have migrated from India, where he lived, to China, it met with the prevailing religion of the time, Confucianism, and we have Chinese Buddhism called Chan. And when the teachings of the Buddha went to Korea and Japan it met with the prevailing indigenous religion or spiritual traditions there and we have now what is called Zen and when the teachings of the Buddha went to Tibet it met with the indigenous Bon religion and so we have what is called Tantra and when the teachings went to Sri Lanka and. Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Thailand, and Burma, it also met with, but in many ways uh, prevailed as what is known as the teachings of the elder. And so you have available, or we have available to us now in the West, all of the, the great variety of, Buddhist tradition teachings. So we have many different lamas and Zen masters and uh, Thai monks and Burmese monks. And there's just a, well, a vast profusion of teachings available to us. And frankly, they look very different. You know, the, the teachings that they offer is very different and if if you got a a Zen master and a Burmese Sayadaw and a Tibetan Lama in a room together to talk about their practice and understanding, I'm not sure there'd be universal agreement (laughs) except on one very foundational teachings upon which all the other techniques and traditions and elaborations of the teachings rest. And that is the teachings of the Four Noble Truths. All Buddhists everywhere understand or have as their basis the teachings of the Four Noble Truths. So as the teachings of the Buddha is coming to the West it is coming from all of these other traditions to the West and meeting the prevailing spiritual, psycho-spiritual tradition of uh, Western psychological understanding as well as the scientific method and unbeknownst to us it's going to be uh, a century or two before there is established a unique Western form of Buddhist teaching practice. We are part of that pioneering of the integration of the teachings of the Buddha into our prevailing mindset, the understandings of the mind from psychology and the very pragmatic demanding Western scientific method. Because of that, and as part of that, it is important that we hear the essential or the rock bottom or the basic universally agreed upon teachings of the Buddha and that we practice them in order to realize to the degree we're able what the Buddha taught. And all the other elaborations from all the different uh, countries and traditions and sects and whatever, while they may be useful or may have been Useful, timely, and fit a particular culture at a particular time, they may not be all that we need. And we may have to do the work ourselves to really understand what the Buddha taught, what the Buddha taught, not the commentarians on the Buddha, and to try to work from that to really realize for ourselves the Truth as the Buddha realized it. So tonight I want to speak about the Four Noble Truths because they are such an essential um, understanding of the Buddha's realization and such an important piece of our practice here. If you know anything about Buddhism, you've probably heard a talk on the Four Noble Truths. Or at least you know there are Four Noble Truths even if you don't know what they are. That's okay. I want to speak about them in a way that we can see them and verify them or use this understanding in our practice here. because. We think we're practicing the Buddhist teachings and we should be sure that we are and that we're practicing correctly and we should be clear about the direction that our practice is going and the realization to be obtained from practice. An interesting fact about the Four Noble Truths is it takes a Buddha to articulate them. The Buddha didn't invent the Four Noble Truths. He didn't make it up. He didn't kind of think it out like, oh, that, this would be a good way to understand things. But through his own direct observation of life, just as we're doing here, he realized what he considered uh, profound truths, And then as a Buddha, he could expound them in a way that others could hear. So whether there is a Buddha, whether there was a Buddha ever come onto the face of the earth, the truth is still the truth. The way things are is still the way things are. It's just that the understanding of the way things are is not available to those who don't have access to the teachings of the Buddha. So what are the, f- what are the Four Noble Truths? Well, the First Noble Truth is called Dukkha Satcha. It means the Truth of Dukkha. Now when I was first started the Dharma practice 35 years ago, I heard, now whether it was being said or not, I heard the first noble truth articulated as life is suffering. Hey, I was 25. I was full of piss and vinegar, and I had my whole life ahead of me, and I was, you know, I went to my first retreat kind of accidentally, sat up back, leaned against the piano, and of course every sitting was excruciating agony, and I don't know if I really wanted to be there, and I didn't know what I was doing, and, you know, uh, life wasn't really my adult life wasn't very mature and certainly wasn't established, but I wasn't suffering. (laughs) And it took years of practicing and listening to Dharma talks. And finally, when I went to Burma and I heard Saito Upandita's translator, translate dukkha as the oppressive nature of phenomena. I got it. I, I got it. Phenomena is oppressive. You know, just being hot is oppressive, being hungry is oppressive, being tired is oppressive. Okay. I began then to understand that it's difficult to open to the truth of dukkha. It's difficult to know really what the Buddha is pointing to. Dukkha has several meanings. The first of which is, pain, physical pain. The physical pain of being sick, uh, jamming your finger in the door, having a toothache, the physical pain of being hungry, the physical pain of being or sitting still for an hour, the physical pain of that we all know all so well. It's no secret. <laughs> Life includes a fair amount of unpleasant physical experience. But it also means mental or emotional pain. The pain of anxiety, fear, shame, depression, loneliness, feeling betrayed, jealousy, feeling discriminated against, feeling isolated from others, wanting what you can't have there's just, well, the list of emotional pain that we all feel at one time or another or at many times in our life, the list is endless and it's pretty obvious. It's no secret that we as human beings all get the opportunity to experience a lot of physical and mental unpleasantness, often at the edge of pain, if not extremely painful. This is so obvious, it's called Dukkha Dukkha. There's a second meaning of the word Dukkha, or there's a second arena of experience that the word Dukkha points to. And it has to do with the fact that everything changes. Now, right now, all of us are in pretty good health, good enough health to be here. We have enough discretionary time to be here, enough discretionary income or some way of putting together financial resources to be here. And we're being very well taken care of to be here. And, you know, we're living in the West in the 21st century, let's face it, we are living at the top of the heap. We are living as good as it gets. Even as bad as it is, it's as as good as it gets. And yet, with all of that, just over the horizon of our immediate experience is the threat of unforeseen, unexpected, calamitous change. And we all know that the conditions in our life that allow us to enjoy the abundance and happiness and security and safety that we now feel, we know that those conditions are vulnerable to change in an instant. Any one of us, can uh, go to our next annual exam at the doctor's and get a diagnosis that forever changes our life. And we don't have to wait till that. We can fear it knowing that our health is vulnerable. It's insecure. The happiness, security, stability that we enjoy now with the abundance of good conditions is fragile. And we know that. Somewhere just out of sight of our immediate experience, we know that. And so we're forever kind of scrambling, struggling, just kind of patching together, more acquiring, accumulating, getting and making arrangements, whatever we can do mm-hmm. to try to ensure that things don't change. or. If they change, they only get better. Well, no matter how much we have, we can't insulate or inoculate ourselves from the inevitable insecurity of unpredictable change as long as our happiness rests on changeable conditions we are vulnerable and this vulnerability and this l- kind of latent insecurity that is just just below the surface can't be put away you can't escape it while relying on changing conditions. Now, I used to think that my insecurity and my feeling of vulnerability and my kind of not quite having it together yet as an early adult, as a mid-adult, and as an approaching elderly adult, <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was my problem, <laughs> my personal little you know, secret. I haven't got it together yet. (laughs) But the Buddha said, you're not alone. Everyone experiences the same thing. If they look, they experience the same thing. We could say that the abundance and the pleasurable conditions that we now enjoy, they're not Dukkha Dukkha because it's not painful. But because it is liable to change and therefore we are vulnerable, it is still dukkha. We say dukkha is hidden in pleasurable experiences. Because when the pleasurable experience changes, the dukkha becomes apparent. Some people say, why should, I, why should I go on retreat and just sit and walk in silence all day? It just makes me miserable, it makes me suffer. The sitting isn't what makes you suffer. The suffering is already there in the mind, in the body. It's by paying attention that we discover it. This is unsatisfactory, this lingering latent vulnerability is just not satisfactory. There's a third meaning, or a third arena of experience that the word dukkha refers to, as if these first two weren't enough. And there's two, there's two elements, or there's two perspectives of this third dukkha. There's the macro view and the micro view. The macro view says we're born, and our parents or other, caregivers doing the best they can provide food, nurturing, education, love. They clean us, they feed us, they burp us, they cool us, they do whatever they can to keep us happy because if we're not happy (laughs) neither are they. (laughs) And doing the best they can, you know, they kinda patch it all together for a few years until they can start enticing others like grandparents (laughs) grandparents siblings you know the government the teachers whatever anybody else that they can kind of get to help educate you and so they take up some of the burden but it isn't too long you know when we're in our teenage years we begin to get the message you're on your own kid And then at some point, we take on the burden of taking care of this body and this mind. And to take care of this body, we have to eat every day. And to get the food to eat, we have to have money to buy the food. To get the money, we need a job. To get a job to get by very well in these day and age, you've got to go to school for 16 years. There's some dukkha. And you work forty hours or sixty hours or more a week. You get your money. Then you got to go to the grocery store and you got to go up and down the aisles. You got to bring it all home, put it all in the cupboard. At the appropriate time, you got to dig out what you want and open it up, make a a mess in the kitchen, cook it all up, or else you just drive by a drive-by window, you know. (laughs) Whatever. And you know, you spend hours shopping, bringing it home, putting it away, digging it out, cooking it up, a few minutes to eat it. and then you spend another hour or two cleaning up, taking out the garbage, taking out the compost, going to the toilet, taking care of all the whole process. <laughs> and you've got to do that several times a day, <laughs> every day. And not only do you have to feed the body, you've got to groom it. You've got to uh, every day you got to stand in front of the mirror and make sure every hair is in place, the skin is right, texture and color, the teeth are taken care of, the body's not got any bad uh, offensive odors or anything else. And, and we have to bathe and clean and groom and nurture and take care of this body. Because if you don't, that's dukkha. <laughs> you know, just go without brushing your teeth or bathing for a month. <laughs> You'll know what dukkha is. And of course the body gets sick, and you've got to take your vitamins, you've got to do your yoga, you've got to get your aerobics, you've got to get all your tests done, and no matter how well you do, no matter how many vitamins you take, how much yoga you do, how, much, how many miles a day you run, how much canoeing you do, kayaking, biking, doing all that, no guarantee. The body can still fall apart, just like that. <sighs> it's exhausting just talking about it.
1: <laughs> okay, <laughs>
0: But the body is the easy part. We've got this mind. You know, you got this mind, you got to take care of the mind too. Because if you don't take care of the mind, if you don't keep it entertained and distracted and, and nurtured and cooed and loved and do all that, if you don't take care of it, it's just like being on retreat. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not doing nothing. Oh, oh there's some dukkha. <laughs> and and you've got to take care of this mind because nobody else can do it for you. And nobody else can take care of this body for you. You have to do it. It's your obligation. It's your responsibility. And you can't get anybody else to do it for you. They got their own. And we got to do this every day. Come rain or shine, health or sickness, alone or in group. We just got to keep doing it. And we got to do it for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, sometimes eight, decades. <laughs> At the end of which, what happened? We put it in its best clothes, put it in a box, <laughs> put it in a hole in the ground. Right? That's, right? That's right. All that investment of time, energy, love, knowledge, everything, into a hole in the ground. Some would say, bad investment. <laughs> right? Do you have a choice? We've got to do it. But let's face it, if all we're doing is carrying this body and mind comfortably, as comfortably as possible, to the grave, we are wasting our time. There is so much more good that can come from a human life. Because to the extent that we know this is what we're up against, we know that everyone else is and to the extent that we feel relief from this burden by the assistance of anyone else, when we know this, that everyone else is is carrying this burden, then whatever we can do to help others carry their burden in life is of great benefit, not only to them, but to you. To be of service in the relief of suffering, is a worth, it's just a worthwhile endeavor in life, however you do that. That's the macro view. The micro view is, we have these six senses, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind. They are constantly being stimulated. There's always sounds, there's always sensations in the bo- on the body. There's, Sights just coming at us all the time. and We can't stop that. And the mind is constantly thinking. It's just incessantly, the, the, the mind is being bombarded with stimulation. And you can't, can't stop it. You can't get away from it. It's just coming at you all the time and we have to bear that. We have to put up with it. It's a burden. It's oppressive. It's it's just draining to even think about it. And yet, this is the way it is. No wonder people drink themselves silly or drug themselves into numbness or distract themselves endlessly because it's oppressive. To just feel it all, all the time. Okay, you get it? Dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> so, dukkha means pain, physical, and mental pain, obviously. It means the insecurity of unpredictable but unavoidable change. It means the burden, the burdensome and oppressive nature of just carrying a body and mind through life, caring for a body and mind through life. Do you know anyone that doesn't experience this? It's universal. Men have their dukkha. Women, they have their dukkha. Elderly folks, we have our dukkha. And young kids, they got their dukkha. Oh, monks and nuns, (laughs) they got dukkha, believe me and lay people have dukkha. Teachers have dukkha, students have dukkha. It's like wealthy people, they got dukkha. Those who have minimal financial resources, they have a lot of dukkha too. All beings live with this condition of dukkha. It is hard to open to the truth of dukkha because uh, what's the other option? (laughs) And when we see it, when we feel it, when we recognize and understand this is Dukkha, this is the condition of life, it is really kind of, uh, it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call. It is said that practice is to investigate in order to understand Dukkha because until we hear the teaching on Dukkha we live our life as if there was some other way. Always looking for happiness, looking for security, looking here, there, getting, having, consuming, becoming, just kinda keeping our life busy on this treadmill which never seems to reach contentment and fulfillment. It's always deficient. You know, when I grew up in the in the 50s in New England, my parents were of the generation where my mother said, Steve, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. <laughs> and even though we had an alcoholic, I had an alcoholic father and living with an alcoholic is at least Dukkha. Do you think there was any mention of pain, suffering, insecurity, vulnerability in our house? No. Never mention. It was normal. I am so grateful. I am so <coughs> appreciative of the Dharma teachers that I've had, who've had the courage and the wisdom to share the understanding of Dukkha with me. Because they brought Dukkha out of the closet so I could take a look (coughs) and see. Because until we see Dukkha, we won't or can't do anything about it. But once we get it, once we see it, once we understand Dukkha, is there any other game in life to play Mm -hmm. but Dukkha and the end of Dukkha, Mm -hmm. really? even though practice is is difficult, it's challenging, it may be the most difficult thing you ever do, and it's painful, it is one of the most, it is, let me just say, the most compassionate thing you can do for yourself is to practice to realize dukkha in your life. Because it is only when we realize dukkha that we can look for the end of dukkha that we can get any relief any real and genuine relief from dukkha it's pretty obvious that we all live with this condition but did you ever ask yourself why why is it this way Why do we have to experience and suffer with this dukkha, this insecurity and oppressive pain? Well, the Buddha, on the night of his awakening, realizing the truth of dukkha, also realized the second noble truth, which is the cause of dukkha. And he understood that the cause of all this dukkha that I just mentioned is craving. Craving in the form of desire or aversion, craving in the form of attachment, craving in the form of yearning or being identified with anything. When I first heard the second noble truth is craving is the cause of dukkha, I did not get it. I just, I didn't get it. And I'll tell you why. There was this assumption in my conditioning, my upbringing, that said if I can get what I want, then I'll be happy. <laughs> doesn't, that, doesn't that make sense? I mean, isn't that, isn't, doesn't that sound right? You know, if you can get what you want, then you'll be happy. And the Buddha said, no. That's not true. In fact, it's the very wanting that is the source of the unhappiness, the dukkha and the unhappiness. Well, spin that one out for me. Well, it's clear we're not craving and wanting dukkha. But if we want something, some material good, some relationship, some knowledge, some thing, some recognition, some fame, some what, whatever. If we want it and can't get it, it's either illegal, immoral, fattening, or any other of those uh, you know, <laughs> prohibitive things. <laughs> if we can't get what we want, there's dukkha. But the Buddha said, if you do get what you want, all of that, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, you do get it. There is, you know, he was, he was honest, enough, honest enough to say there is momentary satisfaction, but it's only brief and momentary. Because if what you want is alive, it's a person, a plant, or anything else, well, it is vulnerable to the insecurity of aging, sickness, and death. If what you want is valuable, the government is going to take their share (laughs) and what's left you have to insure because others want that valuable thing too and so you're forever fearful that it'll be taken. If what you want is digital it's outdated in six months (laughs) (laughs) and any fame or recognition well. We know famous and, and recognizable people who are, don't enjoy it. Okay. And whatever it is that we gain that we receive this momentary satisfaction from is subject to change. The happiness is not guaranteed. It's not enjoyed. Even if you get what you want. But While we are pursuing what we want, we're not happy. When we get it and have it, well, as we do now, how much have we wanted, pursued and gained in our life to be where we are now? Mm -hmm. Satisfied yet? (laughs) Content yet? Ready to stop all this searching for a better future or paradise elsewhere? No, we're still looking. We're still we're still imagining. It's going to get better. And so we're making plan The Buddha said, not only do we crave pleasant experience. We crave continued existence. We want to keep doing this. <laughs> Nothing. Did you Now let's not get too esoteric. What does it mean to crave continued existence? Well, let me just ask Did you have planning mind today? Did you notice planning mind today? You know, planning the future? What is planning the future? Planning the future is imagining paradise elsewhere. You don't imagine hell elsewhere. You don't make plans to be miserable later. We always make plans and they always include ourself. We make plans, we lay down tracks, we lay down seeds in our mind to enjoy better, more happy, gooder in the future while we're currently not enjoying what we've got (laughs) thinking that when we get there we're going to be satisfied finally (laughs) but when we do we're making plans for another future this is called samsara endless looking for happiness in all the wrong places and never being satisfied I, I don't I hate to be the bearer of good news because you probably think it's bad news but <laughs> this is the way it is you know and, and we're all in it we're all in this soup Some of us crave what's called the end of existence. We want things to end We want we just want to get out of it we want to get rid of it you know, when you've we've got an unpleasant body experience or an unpleasant mental experience, or you're in debt, or whatever, you just want to get... We crave to get away from our life also. But some of us, at least all of us in the room, have heard the call. And we've seen, or imagined, or hope that a spiritual life will offer some relief. And so we come on a retreat like this little did we know we bring all of our baggage with us spiritual athleticism <laughs> <laughs> or spiritual ambition knows no bounds but let's just take a simple thing. did you want a good sitting today everybody wants a good sitting. as one of our uh, students uh, told us recently there's nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because you have a good sitting, or a piece of a good sitting. You know, it's just smooth, it's comfortable, it's clear, it's effortless, it's just yeah, okay, wow. And you think, Aha, oh, now I got it You know. <laughs> this is the way it's gonna be the rest of the retreat. Thank God. Thank Buddha, I mean. <laughs> you know <laughs> and we go for a walk just kind of floating just hovering a few feet off the earth. We come back for the next sitting thinking we're just going to plop down in the same place. And we don't. (laughs) It And is just a struggle looking for that same old good sitting for days sometimes, weeks, retreats, retreat after retreat. We can keep looking for something that we experienced long ago. It doesn't come. Be careful what you wish for, you might get it. So this um, second noble truth is that the cause of this dukkha, the cause of this unhappiness, the cause of this insecurity is craving, attachment. Now recent studies have shown that what we think will make us happy doesn't make us as happy as we think it should, and what we fear or imagine will make us unhappy doesn't make us as unhappy as we imagine. Studies also have studies of lottery winners and those who experience catastrophic illness or calamity also reveals that one year after winning the lottery or suffering a catastrophic illness or calamity, the baseline happiness, the outlook on life and the degree of optimism or pessimism is unchanged. Maybe you pay off a few bills. Maybe you go through a little insecurity with the disease or accident. But a year later, ah, no difference. We can only conclude we really don't know what will make us happy. And our idea of happiness is independent of conditions. It doesn't matter what's happening. Whether What it depends on is the quality of our mind. It's not what you got. It's how we relate to what we have and don't have that determines whether there's happiness or not in life. The first noble truth is to be investigated, to be understood, the truth of dukkha. The second noble truth, craving, is to be abandoned. If the Buddha had only realized the two noble truths, there's dukkha caused by craving, good luck. (laughs) We'd be in a hell of a fix. But luckily, found a couple more. (laughs) The third noble truth, the Buddha said, there is an end to all that dukkha. There is an end to all that dukkha. Thank goodness. Usually, when we hear the teaching on the third noble truth, there's talk about Nibbana, enlightenment, freedom, liberation. Things that sound pretty, well, remote. (laughs) Pretty far off. Somewhere out there in the future or maybe only for those who lived in the past at the time of the Buddha. Or maybe if you go into a cave for the rest of your life and just sweat it out. Maybe. (laughs) I don't want to talk about that kind of liberation. I want to talk about how we experience the Third Noble Truth right here, in this retreat, today. One way that we realize the end of dukkha, by paying attention to our moment-to-moment experience, when you find, just sitting there, and you kind of come to, and you realize that the body is full of tension. Just fists squeezed, shoulders are hunched, whatever. And you notice that, you can let go. You can just intentionally let go. And there is a moment of relief. That relief is very close to the momentary end of dukkha. Relief. Or when you discover that the mind is just kind of Churning and kind of caught up in some, some something, and you notice it, and you can just let it go. We can intentionally let go, and we experience this immediate, physical, and mental relief. When I first started. um, uh, my Dharma practice. It was a few years after getting out of the university, and the university that I'd studied engineering back in the days when we didn't have handheld calculators. Everything was done with slide rule and a lot of longhand math. And so I just spent years taking courses of very, very difficult mathematics and engineering. And so my ability to compute, compute, yeah, compute. You know mathematical solutions was pretty strong so i go on retreat sitting there trying to watch the breath the mind wanders off where does my mind wander but into solving complex mathematical problems (laughs) and so i'd come to finding myself you know kind of going trying to multiply out four and five digit numbers in my in my mind you're just going you know and I'd notice that and I'd say, do I need to be doing this now? <laughs> no, oh, phew. thank God. If I wasn't practicing mindfulness, I wouldn't have noticed. Think about that. If you don't practice awareness, you don't know what your mind is doing. You don't know. It's hanging on to all kinds of old, habits, old conditioning. Not just mathematical but emotional and cognitive, it's just the mind is busy doing what it's always done. What have you trained your mind to do? That's what it's doing in its its discretionary time. (laughs) And you don't see it. But when we practice awareness, we see it. And every one of you today had many moments of Many moments, many moments of many moments of awakening, just like coming to, letting go. Coming to, letting go, coming to, letting go, letting go, letting go. The relief is really significant. But that's just a, a minor, even a superficial moment of of ending dukkha. You also have noticed today how the mind gets obsessed with the defilements. It just gets entangled in wanting, and judging, and fearing, and anxiety, and fear, and depression, and judgment, and sleepiness, and it's it's just, didn't you? (laughs) you? Okay, I'm not the only one, right? Okay, so when we notice this, even if we intend to let go and to stop, intention can't cut it. You can't let go of that by just having the intention to stop worrying, to stop anxiety, to stop panic attack. It's only through training the mind. And what we're doing here is learning how to train the mind. Learning how to be so continuously mindful that those obsessions don't get a foothold in the mind. Or when they do, the mindfulness can can arrest them, at least arrest them, if not put them to sleep, put them aside. And while it's only been a few days of the retreat, already you can probably see that the momentum of mindfulness relieves you from some of the intensity of the obsessing. Some. Not completely, but some. Maybe they're not quite as long, maybe not quite as intense, or there's a little more space between them. This is the direction that practice takes us we learn how to let go of the obsessing of the mind and it's a relief. When the mind is not obsessing, it's just, it's just present with things the way they are. This is good, this is good. There's another way that we experience the temporary end of dukkha through practice and while this is a short retreat it's not maybe not so apparent but you can understand that as we practice more and as the hindrances and defilements get put aside more continuously, the factors of awakening get stronger, the wholesome factors of mind become stronger and one of those factors is equanimity. Equanimity is the ability to be not reactive to whatever arises. Just not be reactive, being present with, but being so steady and so balanced that you don't get pulled into or pushed into desire, aversion, judgment, fear, craving. That equanimity, that strong equanimity is a very subtle state of mind, where uh, the mind is not afraid, the mind is not seeking anything, the mind is at ease with everything, and it sees everything. It, and the mind is very quick, very subtle, and the body is very light. When I had strong equanimity in my practice in, uh, in Burma, the body is so light you feel like you're floating, all the time. <laughs> But I, had, I was in robes at the time, I was a monk, I was in robes. I couldn't feel my robes on the body. Mm. I, would f- I felt like I was naked. I, before I would go out of my room, I'd have to check and make sure that I had my robes on because I couldn't feel them. The mind is so subtle and so light. It's not dukkha. It's not dukkha when the mind is that open, that non-reactive, and the body is that, is that light from that place, from that place of equanimity, there's another way that we experience the end of dukkha, and that is through the development of insight. Now Vipassana means insight, but it means specifically the insight into three understanding. The first is the understanding of anicca or impermanence. When the mind is very aware, when our mindfulness is very strong and there's a lot of equanimity, we see in every moment whatever has arisen that it's impermanent. It just doesn't last. No matter how good it is, how pleasant it is, how gross, disgusting, painful it is, it just doesn't last. It's just a momentary appearance. And we know this. We see it. When the mind is seeing everything clearly and understanding that it doesn't last for a split second, or doesn't last for any more than a split second, the mind does not reach for it. It doesn't grasp it. It doesn't cling to it. It doesn't even reach for it because it knows it's not there in the next moment. So the mind that doesn't grasp, the mind that doesn't reach for, but the mind that just knows and experiences, just settles back and lets things go by. If there's no craving, if there's no grasping, if there's no holding, there's no dukkha. The mind just sees things go by, it's not reach, because it understands. Everything is impermanent. Nothing can be grabbed, nothing can be held, nothing can be grasped. The second understanding is the understanding of Dukkha. I mentioned Dukkha, pain, insecurity, vulnerability, oppressiveness. This is a characteristic of all phenomena. It is either painful or changeable and therefore conduces to vulnerability or it's oppressive in its incessantness. When in equanimity, when the mind is very equanimous, it is seeing every moment, momentary experience arising, it also understands this that has arisen has the characteristic of dukkha. It is either painful, it's vulnerable, it's insecure, it's oppressive. And when the mind understands this about experience or phenomena, it doesn't want it. It doesn't crave it. It doesn't grasp it. It doesn't yearn for it. Because it knows that it is dukkha. We don't crave dukkha. We don't crave pain. We don't grasp pain when there's awareness. And so again, the mind that is seeing this characteristic of dukkha remains at ease. It's just totally at ease with whatever happens and can let it go by without reaching, grasping, craving, clinging, yearning for anything. It sees. This is an ongoing stream of relief. There's a third characteristic or a third knowledge that is gained through insight and it is the knowledge of the anatta characteristic. What it means experientially is that the mind sees that whatever has arisen is due to causes and conditions that you can't control. Or it is arisen due to other conditions which are just momentary arising. And the thing itself that we see, that we perceive has no inherent substance, (coughs) it's just made up of other things which are made up of other things, which are made up of it, which are made up of nothing. So whatever it is we see that we might yearn for, grasp, reach, crave, is insubstantial. There's really nothing there. It's like a rainbow. A rainbow is a colorful appearance in the sky due to the conjunction of very specific conditions. Sunlight, moisture, the angle of viewing. And if, it's, if, if they're just right, you see a rainbow. And it's beautiful. And it's an appearance, and you recognize it. But you cannot touch it. You cannot find it. You cannot put it in a bottle and ship it to me in Hawaii. There's no, there's no, there's no such thing. It's just an appearance. There's no substance to it. Everything that appears in the mind is just like that. It's an appearance, a colorful appearance, due to conjunction of conditions that is very seductible but there really is no substance to it, there's no essence to it, there's nothing to be grasped in reaching for it. Now when the mind knows this, when the mind is seeing the anatta characteristic of all phenomena it understands this is but a momentary appearance of no substance no essence and it doesn't reach for, it doesn't grasp, it doesn't yearn for anything. It just sees the appearance, appreciates it for what it is, passing, show. That's it. This again is a stream of just ongoing relief of not craving and therefore not dukkha. There's one further realization of the end of dukkha. and It takes place when the mind is perfectly balanced, when the mind is so equanimous that it's seeing these characteristics in an ongoing way. And the mind understands that there is nothing to be grasped, nothing to be sought after, nothing to be reached that is going to provide happiness, security, whatever. That knowledge allows the mind to let go of the known. And when the mind can do that it drops into or it falls into or it realizes the unconditioned. That which is not conditioned by anything. It is Nibbana. It is a reality. It is the end of dukkha, all dukkha. It can be realized by any one of us. It's not remote. It is as near as the moment. But it takes extraordinary letting go to realize it. It is this that the Buddha is talking to, pointing to, in the Third Noble Truth this reality of no dukkha. When the Buddha talked about the end of suffering, this end of suffering, he proclaimed, it is deep, hard to see, hard to understand, it is sublime, It is beyond mere reasoning but it is intelligible to the wise. It can be realized by those who practice. We use words like peace, contentment and the sublime to point to this truth because it has no dimension, it has no characteristics, it has no size, shape, color, texture. There's no way to talk about it. It is ineffable but we use the word peace to describe its characteristic. Its characteristic is peace, not just tranquility, not just harmony, not just clarity, it's peace. This third noble truth must be realized by each one of us. There is no way to buy it, to get it, to get it transmitted, uh, you can't inherit it, It's do your own work it's a do-it-yourself job but I want to tell you it is possible it is not far away it is not easy but it is possible and the taste of the unconditioned is unforgettable it is worth all your effort to realize it and how do we realize it well the fourth noble truth is the Buddha's eightfold noble path the path to be developed to realize the third noble truth the end of dukkha and what we're doing here is fulfilling the eightfold path in every moment of our being here Because the Eightfold Path is three trainings. It's the training in Sila, or living according to the precepts, purifying our speech and behavior so that we don't act out transgressively the defilements. We're doing that. It is developing the continuity of mindfulness enough to temporarily, or for a sustained period of time, overcome the obsessive defilements of the mind. And we're attempting that and having some success. It is also the practicing insight or vipassana in order to come to the realization that everything is impermanent. Everything has the characteristic of dukkha and everything has the characteristic of being insubstantial or essenceless. And we're practicing in a way to see that. In every moment that we practice this way, we are fulfilling the three trainings of the Eightfold Path. There is nothing else you need to do. There's nothing else you can do that is any more effective than fulfilling the conditions of the Eightfold Path. That is the way. That is the work to be done to realize the Third Noble Truth, the end of Dukkha. You know we'd like to think, oh there's some ritual or some clothes or some this or some bells and whistles and t- I've got to read this book. got d- None of it can be any more effective in developing the path than what you're doing right here. It's hard to do, I know, but this is the path to be developed by each one of us. And why did the Buddha teach the Four Noble Truths? because he said it's beneficial. It belongs to the fundamentals of the holy life. Four noble truths lead to disenchantment, lead to dispassion, it leads to cessation. They lead to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down.